Hello, I am joined today by Peter Joseph, who is an activist, filmmaker, author, most recently of the New Human Rights Movement, which is a pretty incisive read, and I would recommend it. Um, so I, I, I want to get to the book, yeah. Um, but I want to start with a few introductory sure. questions, if you don't mind. Um, so in the promotional material for the book that's distributed by your publisher, yeah. Um, you are identified as the quote founder of the world's largest grassroots social movement. Yeah, that's a pretty grand and jarring claim. Sure. What is the quantifiable basis for that claim? Probably its endurance over the past decade is actually maintaining itself, as opposed to most grassroots social movements that come in and out really rapidly and don't maintain a steady follower base or activities and so on. So the Zeitgeist movement has probably half a million direct subscribers in terms of email lists, and we have about 150 chapters across 60 nations that have preserved themselves, save in contrast to Occupy. Occupy came out as a big burst, and then it's kind of separated and it doesn't really maintain an identity in and of itself. Zeitgeist Moon is a very firm structure and it does annual events twice a year and so on. So I consider it and I don't know of any other comparable organization to be the largest grassroots organization of its kind. Now we can be fanciful with that and say, well, you know, whatever, just numbers and who knows. But the Zeitgeist Movement has had a grand influence in a way I think a lot of people think. And not to deviate too far, but it, it might not be at the tip of the tongue of any kind of mainstream outlet. But a lot of people know of it and talked about it, and that's what I consider it as such to be still the same momentum that it's always had. Well, the, the reason why that sure. claim struck me is because, you know, granting that it's true, mm -hmm. you ought to be one of the most influential people in the world, correct? I mean, I if, think what happens is a systemic relationship to an organization like this because it is a, considered a fringe group because it doesn't identify with mainstream values, therefore it doesn't get much popular play. You know, the, the people that have reported on it have reported very negatively towards it. For example, there was an NBC uh, special they did where probably the first time I'd seen any kind of acknowledgement. And what they did is they took a friend of a mass murderer and they, the friend mentioned that this mass murderer was a fan of the Zeitgeist movement. This was Jared Lohner, exactly. the and this person was, who shot Gabriel Giffords exactly. in 2011. And that was probably the closest mainstream exposure the movement ever had, which was the most derisive and on the edge of lawsuit, because I talked to my lawyers for a long time about that. So when you have an organization that's in support of contrary values to what this system is, you can expect that it's going to be belittled pretty much across the board, if not demeaned directly. But you know, thinking about it, Many movements which are regarded as generally on the fringe, whether it be on the right or left fringe, mm -hmm. tend to galvanize some measure of media attention once they garner uh, enough popular support. I'm thinking of featured. Occupy Movement, for example, like you referenced, yep. even the Tea Party, now the quote unquote alt-right or even white nationalists, they also, tend to get a lot of media attention also, once they demonstrate that they're a formidable force. Sure, well, it's been an arc. Like we were in the New York Times, we've had a lot of European outlets cover it. In fact, Europe is a much stronger base than the United States. We started- Why is that I think because the values, they have a more of a, their understanding of history is stronger. There is more of a socialist or collectivist slash individualist combination there as opposed to the hyper individualism of the West, or I should say of America. Europe understands its early history and knows that there are problems, which is why you have you know, different social democracies there doing different things economically, such as the Scandinavian countries, even though it's technically not specifically Europe, but you know what I mean. There are other pockets of, uh, there's a memory to Europe that is different from the United States. 
And the United States media, as you know, bombastically throws this individualism and capitalism down people's throat all day. And we see that with the birth of the Trump administration. And I think it's a, it's, it's a cloud of, of obfuscation where people aren't subject to these views. The only exception being, which is, was quite remarkable, was Bernie Sanders. In his, in his socialist democratic platform, he did bring that up. And now 51% of millennials, the newest generation, actually do identify with a kind of socialist bent. And that's pretty remarkable, but that still stands in stark contrast to what we see in the mainstream and what mainstream values generally are. Your point overall may be true in terms of the comparative relationship between the United States and Europe in terms of their historical, the historical context that they apply. Sure. But you know, there's a pretty vibrant intellectual community in the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably clustered in a few coastal enclaves, but nevertheless, it has a big influence. I mean, there's a emerging kind of left-wing intelligentsia, I would say, that's kind of revolves around a few fledgling publications and magazines and websites. So why isn't it that your book and and your movement more broadly have been embraced by those? Kind of burgeoning intellectual Because it's forces. still too radical. What I propose too radical for like a Marxist magazine. Or are you aware of any highly publicized Marxist magazines in the United States? For one, I don't ascribe to Marxism as a, as an idea, but I know what you're saying as far as the well, extremity. I mean, Jacobin magazine comes to mind. I guess I would more term it socialist, but it's a pretty influential now intellectual magazine that does reportage, it does analysis. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering why a and it has sort of like a, a concomitant. Culture, cultural backing. So I'm just wondering why that sort of subculture isn't more embracing of I wish you I and, your, and, and, your, and your massive, I at least it, allegedly massive movement. Well, I think it, the term massive on a global scale is quite relative. Uh-huh. It's very small in terms of the pressures, excuse me, in terms of the political organizations out there on the global scale. But it does have a large base and it does a lot of activity and it has had influences you know you see these influences carried forward with a lot of other personalities you know i i've i can't look at the ethics and descriptions of folks say like russell brand without thinking you know these individuals have obviously paid attention to some of this stuff that's come forward they might not source it they might not say well i, I appreciate what this writer had to say or this movement because usually we have an individualistic culture that's based on literally branding so people tend to want to present the idea that their ideas are their own you know, this is just a general kind of reactionary problem we have. Not that it matters to me. I mean, honestly, it's a, it's a, this is a, this is a seed planting organization because the type of change that we promote is so radical and so different than what everyone finally concludes. When you actually want to change the entire economic structure, not many people, especially if they're famous and they're in, in media and they have a lot of money, are really going to want to alter the mechanisms that have rewarded them so greatly. They'll talk about the need to have better social inclusion. They'll talk about the need to reduce economic inequality. They'll talk about the need for certain standards of community that are being lost now in modern capitalism. But very rarely do they go that final length. And the Zeitgeist movement does go that final length, as does the book. I think that's why it doesn't get the attention that it does. Some pay attention to attributes of it, and they pick up what they agree with, what they identify, what their values are comfortable with. But then they, they get too fearful of the grand change that's promoted. That's I, my view. I don't know the answer to it, perfectly honest with you, Michael. I, I, uh, no, I, and I, I wouldn't expect you to have a concrete answer. Okay. It's obviously a complicated question. But the reason why I'm prompted to raise the subject mm-hmm. is because I perceive, again, across the spectrum, a, more, a greater willingness now to embrace ideas which are perceived as radical in the mainstream. And those ideas end up 
infiltrating the mainstream. So I'm wondering why your movement hasn't followed a similar trajectory when you see this happening on, again, the left, right, and everywhere in between. And again, and again as I would, a seed planting organization, though, that's the way, because I can't help emphasizing that. It's not that suddenly the stamp of the logo of the movement should be on every mainstream network. It's right. not that suddenly my face is the symbol of something larger. Uh -huh. In fact, I prefer it not to be. Right. You know, this isn't an identification with a group per se or an identification with an individual, it's an identification with a train of thought. And I think that train of thought permeates the way it does naturally. We have a polarized reality now. We do have people that are being more progressive. But we have a lot of people moving towards heavy right, uh, you know, borderline fascist views as well as with the rise of the Trump administration. So I couldn't tell you whether we're heading in the right direction, the wrong direction, because we have this incredible divergence that's, that's actually happening. And statistically speaking, I think I'd have to argue that while the progressive ideas are moving forward, they're being exceptionally hindered, especially with the media's focus in the United States, by the more extreme right-wing views. And I think that's dominating right now. So if you can see your ideas sort of subtly permeating public consciousness, that to you is a win. The way I see it, there's no other choice. Whether there's one person in the zeitgeist movement or there's a billion people, it doesn't change the focus and necessity of it. The zeitgeist being a representative, representative train of thought, not an institution. Something that people need to get behind in terms of public, excuse me, uh, cultural sustainability, which includes ecological sustainability and social stability, which means we don't wanna fight with each other and we wanna be in harmony with the planet. Right. Because right now we're hitting a, hitting a crossroad with those two issues and they're gonna reinforce each other in a very negative way. And I think over the course of the next 30 years, uh, what's gonna rise to the surface if serious changes aren't made is gonna be pretty ugly. Yeah. And we'll take a quick break. Hey Jank, what's up? And I'm reading some of the comments on a YouTube video I did. What's a cuck? Go. I first became aware of you now about 10 years ago mm -hmm. when I, like millions of others, saw the initial Zeitgeist video sure. on the internet. And I don't want to dwell too much on that because I know your project now is sort of divergent from what that initial video represented. But I still think it's sort of interesting mm -hmm. background to delve into. Um, and there are... When I kind of searched my memory for what I recollected about that video, I guess I watched it in college. Sure. Um, <laughs> like a lot of people who were uh, maybe a little wayward at the time. Um, I, I remember that there were a couple segments. There was one about having to do with religion. There was one having to do with 9-11 and one having to do with the world financial system. And war. And, and war, right. Um, and I, I don't want you to litigate the 9-11 set. Section. I know that's been sort of a, something that a lot of press try to oh, foist a, upon you. It's certainly a black hole, no doubt. Right, but I think revisiting that issue is sort of interesting now because I think I see sort of conspiracism as an increasingly popular. Oh, it's terrible. Source of refuge yeah. for people who maybe disillusioned from the status quo and they latch onto these various ideas. Yeah. It's informing both, for example, Trump's support base and also his opposition. Yeah. Um, so there are conspiracies kind of flying in every direction now. Do you, do you draw a through line well, between I what's going on now and, 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 the, and the, the popularity that the 9-11 conspiracy gained 10 years ago? I mean, your, your movie came out around the peak of that kind mm -hmm. of fervor, I would say. I would say that we shouldn't lump in views 
against the United States government's claim of 9-11 with the rabid and lunacy filled and conspiracy culture that we see today. You know, we've had the explosion of paranoia and in-group, out-group delusions now with the birth of Trump and of course the Alex Jones community that has been accompanying him. And it's polluted those that have had rational disagreements with historical events. So I'm not here to debate the issue, but I will say that I don't even talk about the issue of 9-11 anymore because it's been so hideously conflated with, say, believing in the Earth is flat or believing that there are reptiles that are in inner Earth. So you can't have this discussion anymore. And I don't even try to because it ultimately doesn't matter to me. I've deviated from that issue in 2000, excuse me, in, 2000, yeah, in 2009 when I made the addendum to that movie. And I said, okay, well, I have an audience now. Remember, the, the first film was a performance piece, which gave it its artistic bent, which people criticized the style of it because it wasn't actually intellectually, um, it didn't unfold in an intellectual documentary manner that most expect. It was sensational. So I was throwing a lot at the audience to see what the reaction would be. It was really, for me, it was a study in sociology. And then addendum came out and I said, okay, well, I have attention now, so I'm gonna focus on the economy because this is the most important issue we have to deal with today. And it's unfortunate the overshadowing, it's not just the 9-11 issue, the religion issue overshadows my, my arguments often as well. I still get hate mail for that and get endless criticism. But it's not as fervent as the, the, as the anti-conspiracy culture, which is just as bad as the conspiracy culture. Because you have these polarized views of the way the world functioning is, and they're both just as biased. And I think it's really unfortunate that you can't have a grassroots, grassroots or a root foundation intellectual conversation about something without being lumped into being some fringe lunatic that's irrational. It's unfortunate. Yeah, you know, I think you're right to say that there is a problem with this reactionary anti-conspiracy culture, meaning this tendency for people, especially in positions of power, to summarily dismiss what they call conspiracies without addressing what is being claimed on the merits. And that sort of leads to a disenchantment where people are feeling like certain information is being suppressed. And I think you know the the 9-11 issue was a progenitor of that Mm -hmm. in a a significant way. Absolutely. Uh, Any kind of labeling that distracts people from critical thought is destructive, obviously. We see that with the word communism. Ooh, anything that you know leans against capitalism must be communist, and boom, you must be in favor of the, the atrocities of the Soviet Union, or by extension, you must be a national socialist and be in favor of Hitler. These are the kind of associations that build up, and it's a disappointing kind of mind control that people are so susceptible to this, because you start to label people and then label their ideas, and people get fearful of associating with ideas, and suddenly they're inhibited because they don't want their reputation to be polluted by associations, regardless of the merit of the argument or debate. It's reversed a little bit now with the Trump phenomenon. I mean, this is really bizarre because the conspiracy culture has said, okay, we're, we don't believe anything anymore. <laughs> we're gonna follow what this individual says. We're gonna make assumptions that have no foundation. We're gonna call everything we don't believe in fake news. And this has been, I mean, I, people once interview, interviewer asked me, do I feel any responsibility for this because of the popularity of that film? And a lot of people labeled it a conspiracy film. I didn't see it that way at all. I was presenting arguments based on what I had understood. It wasn't, the word conspiracy doesn't even appear in that film because it's not based upon that. It's not about that. It's about mythology. It's about sociology, how people are manipulated, how they don't understand historical events. 
And I asked, I answered that question that there's, I do, I, I, if I had any contribution to that, I regret it, that's for sure. But I, I still stand behind the arguments I put forward, and I've, I've spent years, you know, expanding on those to try and clarify the issue, so people don't watch something and then take paranoid dispositions. And that's not my intent at all. You know, I think attributing the flourishment of what you might call this kind of conspiracy culture, I've seen it referred to in academic journals actually as this almost conspiracy spiritualism. Oh, yeah, that's a weird one. Um, yeah. uh, but I think attributing that solely to you would be a stretch. But I think at the same time, a lot of this culture draws heavily on the internet. Mm -hmm. And uh, your first film was a huge force on a lot of people, especially in their formative stages. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if it was a formative influence on me necessarily, but it was, I consumed that information at a formative stage. Sure. Um, so I think people wondering whether. There is any um, whether your film was a precedent for what's going on in the current moment. I think it's a valid line of inquiry. No. Yes and no. I, who's to say? I mean, I'm far from one that has talked about such issues, and they're very modest in truth compared to the lunacy that you see in the in the conspiracy culture and the Alex Jones community that have a whole spectrum of of bizarre assumptions and projections and and unfounded uh, views. So I, I think it's. To whatever effect the argument is valid, I have no idea. Uh -huh. And all I do is I've clarified my position. I've worked diligently over the past decade to show what I'm about, what the movement's about. The movement has nothing to do with conspiracies or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Specifically about economic change to help society. I think I would be remiss not to try to drill down on one aspect of this. And again, I don't want to dwell totally on it. And we will get to the book in the final segment, I promise okay, you. Sure. Um, but in terms of 9-11. And again, it was a huge—it's a huge event in modern American history. It led to a lot of things that we are still beset with. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you do you still maintain? I mean, the takeaway from the first film uh -huh. was that the the official narrative is completely wrong and it's covering up the truth. Do you, the takeaway. How, from how the do first you reflect on what that portended? I mean, do you, do you still believe that the Official narrative of 9/11 ought not to be believed. Well, here's what I, here's what I'll say about that. The answers, the questions have not been answered. So okay. when you have unanswered questions, what breeds confusion, speculation, and that that leads to all sorts of terrible uh, assumptions about 9/11 that I don't want to have any association with, such as you know people that talk about no plane to the towers. You know these are bizarre what's things. What's a central question that hasn't been answered? Why were there over 200 warnings that went unheeded by the U.S. government? Because the U.S. government is incompetent. See, the U.S. That's <laughs> therein lies a deeper idea. Do you think the military-industrial complex is incompetent? Do you think, with all of its technology, its its use of high academia, do you think its its complete outrageous funding is incompetent? Do you think the CIA and the FBI are incompetent? See. Again, it's a difficult conversation because if you want to go down that road, it's going to take me at least an hour right. to go through it all. But I'll say this, the United States never gave the public a thorough investigation. And there are numerous omissions and things that should have been talked about that any self-respecting American or human being on this planet should have demanded. Not to see this flagrant nonsense that was put forward and then buried under the speculations of others, which completely legitimize the delegitimize the argument, because now you can't have a rational conversation with most people about it because they think you're just speculating. There are so many unanswered questions. I would be completely happy to to dismiss all of my assumptions if the questions were actually answered. Right. Okay, okay. we'll take a quick break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, Jank, what's up? Aaron, I forgot my email password. What is it? P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D. And now we will turn to your new book, which I did find quite incisive um, in numerous ways. Um, so a lot of the analysis in this book is associated, I would say, with pretty traditional leftist critique mm-hmm. of capitalism. Um, so, so for example, you say capitalism is a system of structural class oppression and social control with only the naive illusion that pure free market principles are universal, effective, or even possible. So it seems like that could fit pretty comfortably into contemporary socialism, for example. So why why is it that this, what, what you lay out here has to take the form of this uh, novel social movement when it really is in keeping with the historic leftist critique? Except it isn't in keeping. The, the amount of scientific evidence, the relationship to ecology, the social science surrounding public health, neurocognitive neuroscience, the social psychology that we can now attribute in our behavior to the social system, the depth of the argument is far superior now. Now, I'm not arguing that people didn't, their intuition wasn't fairly accurate when it came to you know, early socialist thinkers. It there's, doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the kind of class antagonism that goes on in the system and the way that the wealthy are preserved while the lower classes are generally oppressed. And that word is used very literally because it's not that any individual is just saying, oh, I'm going to oppress that person, oh, I'm going to raise that person up. It's a systemic problem. And when you take the whole of public health science and revelations about what's happened in our consumer culture over the course of the past 200 years within the industrial revolution, and you put this together, you have a scientific foundation that says capitalism, market economy, which has its roots in scarcity and dominance, has its roots in the assumption that there there have to be winners and losers. This entire social psychology and its procedural dynamics as related to the environment, completely invalid. You have to move past this if you expect to see progress in the future. And when people try to come forward and do things within the system, people talk about universal basic income, I'm in favor of that, but it's still a patch. You have people trying to incentivize renewable energies in the system through markets, as though you know markets are going to be used as a tool to end the problems of markets, the negative externalities that are created. So you have all this stuff that people are trying to do within the system to try and fix it, not knowing that the actual structure is inherently invalid. It's not gonna function anymore in a positive way. It has in the past to a certain degree, but with the ecological crisis, how do you have a society based on consumption where labor is attached to to demand? That in a society since the industrial revolution that doesn't, meet demand, it actually has to create demand. And that's an extremely problematic state that didn't exist 200 years ago in the purview of most economists. They had no idea we'd have the abundance potential that we have now, where people have to be supported by the act of consumption. And this has been a brainwashed kind of mechanism, you know, the National Association of Manufacturers, I detail this in the book. You know, It took a long time to get American culture specifically, because America is a case study in this, to, to start buying and consuming. It was an argument against communism towards a more pro-egalitarian society in America for people to buy and consume after World War II. Consumerism became a functional philosophy, and that can't possibly be positive for the economy. So you excuse me for the ecology. I meant to say okay. you can't be you can't have an environmental sustainability when you have a system like that. That's just one example. So so you wouldn't situate this book or your broader project within a left wing canon. I don't put any labels on it or any isms because it just again it distracts from the message that's the train of thought. 
The more people label and throw stuff on top of ideas, the more they get confused, the more they become poorly defined, and the more you can't have a conversation about it. So I don't use any of those language in that language at all. People can associate it the way they want, but in truth, it's a train of thought that is very rational from the ground up, and it doesn't deserve to be called socialist or communist, communist or left wing or right wing. It just needs to be understood as it is. I agree with you actually about the non-utility of latching on to labels, which tends just to be an excuse for people to pigeonhole things that they yeah, don't want to you fully. You believe the kind of criticisms I get just superficially, just because I'm in opposition to the capitalist structure with no thought at all. People just dismiss it because they think, oh, we already tried that. Yeah. Oh, remember the USSR? Yeah. And there is a there is a right wing critique of the capitalist structure as well. So it's not as if that automatically makes one any kind you, of you mean card one, carrying leftist. Well, you mean one that refers to the fact that we don't have a free market and we have to remove state interference? Is that libertarian uh, views? The right wing. Well, I mean that views? would be one one view. I mean, but there are there's a certain kind of maybe more paleo conservative argument that doesn't even hold up capitalism as an ideal. Okay. Whereas the libertarian would. Yeah, that's sure. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm not as much familiar with that one, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, here's a point you make that I thought was interesting. You say empires are like socio-geographic diseases, born of the dominant social psychology of the root socioeconomic orientation of the social system. And you go on to say all wars are indeed class wars when root motivations are observed. Now that seems to contravene everything I'm told by the foreign policy establishment about the very benign and altruistic motives of the American security state. Are we just <laughs> an empire floundering? I'd be hard pressed to find anyone that can defend the empire. Um, there's a couple terms in there that I can define for you, but I think you're familiar with the Gallup poll of 66 countries that were asked across, I think, uh, many thousands of people, what is the most dangerous nation on the planet? The United States was given as the highest answer. The United States is the greatest threat to security on this planet in the views of most people, not, not Americans, of course, because that exceptionalism is in, has been ingrained into culture. Root socioeconomic orientation, that has to do with where we came from after the Neolithic Revolution. So agrarian society came. There's a geographical determinism to the way our world is. It's not just that someone came up with this, as you'd imagine, but it's intuitive, but I'll be briefly attempt to touch upon it. There's, when the agrarian revolution happened, people came to fix societies. There were certain requirements for that, such as labor specialization. Remember before that, in 99% of human history, were hunter-gatherer societies, no money, no markets. And the need to trade, the need to isolate, the need for protectionism, the need for government, the need for property and property rights, all of that became codified in the new system that eventually evolved into what Adam Smith formalized as capitalism, right? The root socioeconomic orientation of that from the birth of the agrarian revolution means that, one minute, means that we have to, means that there's a basis of scarcity, first of all, that everything is scarce, there's a universal acceptance that there's not enough to go around that means are scarce. So the idea of any kind of abundance or any type of you know, equitable distribution becomes, becomes improbable, if not completely ridiculous in the minds of economists that orient towards this. Open up any classic economics 101 book, resources and means are scarce. There's no nuanced view towards it. And what does that do? It leads to trade strategizing dominance. It leads to protectionism that is associated with dominance. And then by extension, if you have that kind of Malthusian view, suddenly of oppression. You justify poverty, you justify people having less than others. You justify the lack of social inclusion and so on. That's the root socioeconomic orientation of our system that goes back to the Neolithic Revolution. 
And it's only kind of permutated in different ways up until now. And now, one of the per nation permutations states, is empire and, and empire and nation war. states are class relationships, just like class relationships in domestic societies. So empire from the British Revolution had the biggest state of empire. If we have to break, just let me know. Mm. The biggest state of empire, the biggest precedent of empire because they had technology and the steam engine, the first industrial revolution to actually start controlling large swaths of land. And then that eventually gravitated to the American empire with increasingly more technology. And that, with the drop of the atomic bomb in World War II, it set the ultimate precedent that said, we are the global power. We are going to put military bases everywhere. We are going to control the world economy. And that is a socio-geographical disease built on effectively capital accumulation and the need to dominate in a scarcity worldview. Okay. Let's take a quick break. Hey, what's up? Aaron, what do you like better? Sarabies or Sarabies? Go. You were discussing, you know, the the interplay between the the kind of fundamental socioeconomic structures that society is built upon and the emergence of these empires, mm -hmm. including the current American empire. Could you just continue, just elaborating so long, on that? Long story short, you look at global. And by the way, I appreciate your attempt to encapsulate these extra, extraordinarily complex topics in a relatively short. Do my best. Do my best. <laughs> I tend to be verbose, I'm strategically trying to cut this down. So you look at class structures in a domestic society, you see mechanisms that create that. There are, there are procedural mechanisms, there are incentive-based mechanisms that lead one to dominate over another as far as having more power and wealth than others. And that plays out on the global scale simultaneously. And I'll say this with respect to empire, you know, a lot of people look at the world today, a lot of apologists for capitalism, a lot of philanthropists, and they say, well, you know, we just haven't let markets and capitalism get to the poor destitute areas of Africa or the poor destitute areas of Latin America. What they don't recognize is the post-colonialist reality that these areas were carved up amongst Europeans and deeply exploited. And the poor of the world are not the ones that have been left behind by markets, the ones that have been robbed. And it is a function of this root scarcity orientation, this market-driven trade dominance that colonialism existed and exists at all. And that's something that people miss as well because they, they tend to assume once again with the birth of Adam Smith that, oh, we free markets are new. It's not related to slavery. I mean, if you go back to slavery, what was the root incentive of slavery? We had white indentured servants in America before African slaves were brought over. Suddenly it was realized it was a better investment to have black slaves. And what were the kings doing in Africa? Whites, whites didn't go and bring up ships and take on black slaves and bring them to America. They were selling them. So there's money being abused on both sides. So money and markets and trade, this is the root of all evil. <laughs> this is, there's no cliche to this anymore. That we have to develop a collaborative system that utilizes and amplifies, amplifies the best attributes of what actually makes our economy good, what actually creates the abundance, what actually creates the collaborative spectrum that underscores the competitive. So we have this proxy system that we need to start to disassemble and create a new system. And that's what I propose in the fifth chapter of this book. Do not deviate from your point on empire, but I mean, to summarize that issue, it's just, you have class relationships in a macro and micro level, and they are organized procedurally by the dynamics and incentives of markets mm -hmm. and the strategic dominance that comes from that. The analysis that you put forward here and that you've put forward more you know, broadly over the last 10 years or so seems to be divorced from electoral politics, or at least it floats above electoral politics. What role, if any, do you see electoral politics playing as a vehicle by which some of the principles that you're advocating here can be effectuated. It's a minor role, 
because the state is driven by business interests and always has been. You know, going back to kind of a conservative pro-market libertarian view, you know, they, they argue that the state is an, is an issue. You know, the state, oh, we've got to get money out of politics, you know. We've got to stop all this general corruption that inhibits the freedom of markets, this sort of quasi-neoliberal view. And that is comical because the state has always been composed of the high business and elite powers of any given society. Right. So here's the the great conundrum. You know, you, people say, "Well, we get money on the markets. We got to, you know, who can't let Glass-Steagall be repealed? We can't let these things come forward." And then they say, well, "Get some like Bernie Sanders in. Oh, well, he's going to change these policies. We're going to get blah blah blah." But that they don't take into account is that it goes against the grain of a system, this system, to have any kind of social social foundation, any kind of collaborative sense, any kind of state-driven efficiency. And when someone does make those policies, all it takes is a new administration to come in going with the grain, such as the Trump administration, to remove all those policies. So even if you had this kind of- The Obama administration didn't exactly go against the grain in this respect. No, either. but they were at least a little bit more of, a, of an interest, say, in like climate change. You know, at least there was something. But you can't, the state is completely and utterly corrupted by business power and will always be that is way. Is that an inevitability though? Is it an inevitability the that system? the co-mingling between corporate power and state power is Absolutely. going to There's, come out? There has never been a variance of that in history since the agrarian revolution, going from monarchs, feudalism, mercantilism to capitalism. And there, there never will be as long as the structure is, is preserved. Isn't the notion that state power is inherently corrupted sort of, doesn't that breed a certain cynicism though? I mean, well, there, here, were so we'll go, were, there were so many people who were animated <coughs> by the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example. I mean, were they engaged in a fruitless endeavor? No, they're trying to do things within the confines of what they see possible in that narrow electoral context. You know, if Sanders was elected, yeah, there would have been better social policies for America. You would have improved certain things. Well, he would have gone against the grain of a heavy lobbying community, against all the people that are working against any kind of sanity and balance and sustainability in the system. So that fight would have been constant, but it wouldn't be like the overt kind of drop off that we've seen the Trump administration, removal of science, the, the diminishment of the EPA, uh, the pull out of the Paris Accord and so on. So to me, it's a mood issue. It's not to say that we shouldn't do certain things within the system. I'm all for universal basic income and things like this, little patches that will help improve poverty. But the focus has to be removal of the structure. So you're in agreement with Mark Zuckerberg on <laughs> universal- Well, here's the caveat of, of this. And this is why the billionaires intuitively flock to this is because they know that their positions are in danger with high class inequality, whether they're conscious of it or not. Mm -hmm. And if you have billions and billions of dollars, the idea of giving people a stipend every month outside of the welfare system doesn't seem much off your back. And the sad reality even more so is that classism, the way the system is organized, that money that is put into the system funnels its way back up to the upper class anyway. So you're saying universal basic income could be used as sort of a tool to mollify and subdue the masses. In, in Isn't a, that sort of like in a world consequence? Of in a world of technological unemployment, there's no other solution. That's why Elon Musk talks about the direct correlation between the two. He's completely rational about it. You, you have to have something to compensate for technological unemployment because it's, it's more cost efficient for companies to use technology than humans. And that's the basic primary logic, rational primary logic of markets, cost efficiency. Cut costs. So I just recently saw an article on McDonald's. They put in kiosks. Their stock went up because they wouldn't put in automated kiosks, and they're laying off thousands of employees. And that's also a testament to the way market psychology actually works. Why should it be that stocks go up in value when people are being laid off? 
Therein lies the complete classism probably in its ultimate embrace. But 83% of all stocks are owned by 1% of the population. It is the financial sector is the highest power system probably the world has ever known. And they this represents the total antagonism of the working class versus the financial elitist class, which has emerged to be the highest political influence simultaneously as we see. Time for a break. Hey, Jank, what's up? Aaron, my VCR keeps flashing 12, but it's not even midnight. Go. The, the notion of billionaires flocking to this universal basic income idea is pretty interesting. On the one hand, you could see why they might have a self-interested motive in advocating this. Again, to mollify or subdue mess, but at the same time, it would alleviate great suffering. I'm not against it. Yeah. Don't. I'm just. I just want to point out the caveat. Uh, Martin Luther King in 1967, his poverty movement, economic bill of rights, he was trying to get universal basic income done then. And right before he died, there was a big uh, march he was putting on just for that purpose. So it's long overdue. And it really represents, if intelligently thought about, the, the efficiency that we've created as a civilization that says that it's ridiculous for anyone to be in poverty, not only in the United States, but the world, but specifically in the United States. And this will rectify that, and I think it will eventually happen, it probably has to. And you will see an increase in public health. But we can't distract from the fact that the system is still antagonistic to the environment, it's still a classist, it's still oppressive, it generates racism and bigotry and xenophobia and social destabilization. The universal basic income will, will, will complace, create complacency slightly for a little while, but it doesn't counter all the other structural artifacts that have to be countered. Right. Yeah. Can I ask on a, on a personal level? I mean, how do you how do you embody the activism that you advocate? You know, how do you what, what do you do on a, on, a, on a typical day to further these principles? I'm just well, curious. Like, what, very what active, your, what, active yeah. in the movement, of course. Uh, I, I we just did a we do lots of podcasts. I of course am working actively to communicate the ideas. The biggest issue is education. I've lectured all around the world. Uh, you know, I'm going to be doing a, a Skype thing in the UK for a, an event that's happening in a couple of days. So I'm actively trying to get the point across. You know, there's plenty of, of detailed things that I've talked about that can be done creatively, such as the fifth chapter of the book where it talks about the need for a system that unifies a focus towards automation instead of human labor, towards access instead of property, towards open source instead of proprietary knowledge, towards localization as opposed to globalization due to ephemeralization, which is this phenomenon that things are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, where we don't need the, the incredible inefficiency of globalization as it's emerged, which is really just another form of colonialism if you look at it from a geopolitical standpoint. And the amazing technology we have to create feedback systems that actually let us know what's happening in the world. Uh, they call it digitized network feedback that contradicts old uh, anti-socialist theories like Ludwig von Mises put forward the economic calculation problem. This is a very famous theory that people hold up in the pro-capitalist community and say, oh, you have to have money in markets to decide people's preferences and so on. We can override all of that. And there are creative initiatives that I've talked about that unfortunately need funding and so on in this society to get them going. I imagine the future participatory economic system where people are able to log on to CAD and computer aided engineering systems. There are no more corporations in the future. And they are able to design and open source with information access to all the resources in the world, ideally, but at least in the region. Because localization doesn't, will eventually mean that you don't need to know all the resources in the world because things are going to get smaller and smaller and more efficient. You understand that trend. Right, the local ephemeralization and a more with less phenomenon or zero marginal cost is a powerful, probably the most important economic phenomenon, probably the most important phenomenon of the entire human species, where we're able to do more and more and more with less and less and less. 
Hence the nature of your cell phone chip more powerful than, than the giant you know, 10 ton supercomputer of two decades ago. And that's gonna happen across the entire industrial system. And that enables a whole new level of engagement in a kind of participatory democracy. And I, I'm afraid at length in this discussion, I couldn't go through the, the details of all of that. But in the appendix of that book, which you might have noticed, I outline in a logical, symbolic logic form, the fundamentals of that and what it means to actually create a system that actually has decision making built into it, as opposed to this proxy system we have now, which is just trading for profit and we hope for the best. Yeah, we get some innovation, enormous amounts of waste, hideous external problems, and of course, uh, you know, other exhaust. You can look at the economy like this. It's a big machine. We're all pulling levers on it. One side you have all the goods and shoes and cell phones and cars. The other side you have all the externalities, poverty, climate destabilization, the fact there'll be more plastic in the ocean by 2050 than fish, the incredible, every life support system in decline. And the trick is how do we emphasize the abundance production that we've been able to achieve in the past 200 years through science and technology, not capitalism, and get rid of all the exhaust that is destroying the planet and creating distorted human psychology and effectively ruining the world. And if that exhaust is gonna overcome the other side soon enough if we don't change gears. Have you engaged at all with American academia on these issues? I mean, historically, American academia for all its faults has um, been hospitable to various radicals I could go down the list. I mean, yes and no. um, Noam Chomsky has been a, one of the leading American of educational institutions now for many decades. He's I mean, a rare, he's maybe, a he's an, maybe he's an aberration. Yeah. Um, but has that been a priority for you or, or, or is maintaining a distance from that institution in any way? I don't think about it in terms of a relationship or not. I do still find that the held up intelligentsia most have been rewarded with accolades of success and reputation and money. And when you start talking about changing the system that rewarded them or associating any individual with a fringe belief system, which this is quickly dismissed, then they tend to shy away. I think in the private conversations of a lot of the high scientists and folks that haven't been too polluted by the institutionalization and the Ivy League kind of kind of a narrow myopic perception, because you have to admit when people go through high education, there's also an element of indoctrination. And you talk to any classical, excuse me, any market economist, they, they will glaze over when you try to talk about the environment or talk about negative externalities because they only know the utilitarianistic views that they've been taught. They only know what they assume about economic man and how, oh, well, if we, if we can make profit to make goods and we can make profit saving the environment, which is a completely antithetical proposition. You hear people like Richard Branson talk that way. So the intelligentsia of the academic community, no. I have, even though I source lots of folks that have worked outside of the box to a yeah, certain degree. you cite degree. all manner of academic yeah. studies yeah. in this book. It's so. in pockets though. None of the folks that I source, I'm creating a train of thought, actually rave, arrive at the conclusions that I present. Very few, very few. And I, I leave that to you know, the audience to decide why that is. I think people are just afraid to rock the boat in that community. And that goes for a lot of the billionaire class too. I think there's really smart people out there that want to do really good things, but they're and they're willing to criticize aspects of the system. But we haven't reached that kind of group acceptance that there's something wrong. It's up to the next generation. When again, as I mentioned, 51% of millennials do have an anti-capitalist sympathy, and I think that's the generation that will hopefully harness this. Now, I have no illusions about the type of difficulty faced with this change. 
We, everything moves against it right now. You can't even, we can't even get people to do anything relevant when it comes to climate change. Even the Paris Accord is a non-binding set of agreements. The Kyoto Protocol before that, Canada was $14 billion in fines Canada had in the Kyoto Protocol, right? They're supposed to pay that, that's the goal. Instead, the Canadian Prime Minister and the government say, you know what, we gotta worry about our declining economy right now. We're withdrawing from the Kyoto Protocol. And that's what you're gonna see. You're not gonna see any type of real, maybe in the smaller, some of the smaller European countries because they're isolated and they can, they can do things in a little bit more of a less, uh, they, they could be off the grid slightly, such as in Germany and so on, they're gonna do pretty well. But when it comes to empire, when it comes to, when it comes to uh, the major dominant economic forces that have so much at stake and that are being threatened by technological unemployment and are so adverse to any type of adjustment within capitalism that could hint of socialism, no, you're gonna see exactly what Trump did throughout the majority of the community. Well, I think it's a universal principle that if you have benefited and prospered based on the function of a system, then you're gonna resist kind of critiques of that system. I mean, and that, that applies Operant across the board. Yep, operant social and psychological conditioning. And that's a great barrier. The greatest threat to humanity right now is the way we think. And we can't just think our way out of it without structural change. Very few people can go against the grain of what the group identification is without without the pain of being ostracized or losing their reputation or not having work and so on. So we're, we are imprisoned by our public perception, even more so than ever with the internet. And that's why I find to be the greatest inhibition is that people see the problems, they're willing to go a certain length, but they're not willing to go that extra length because they feel it's gonna threaten their direct survival. And it's, that, it's exactly that short-term interest that will create long-term destruction. So there has to be a way to snap out of this, which is why I support this kind of structuralist view. If you want to change society, you have to change the way the structure is, then you change the incentives, then you change the social psychology. And we know human variability allows for many different ways of thinking and many different ways of interacting socially. Again, 99% of human history, hunter-gatherer societies, no money. We have hundreds of examples in the 19th century of people that have gone to indigenous cultures to see how they were thinking, completely different worldviews. So the whole human nature debate, the capitalism representative, it's representative of a very core kernel jungle primitive view. It pings our lower reptilian brain, our limbic system, ignoring the prefrontal cortex, our consciousness, our ability to be empathic, to, to actually relate to things beyond this fear survival mechanism, which is constantly being pinged throughout our society today. So again, I have no illusions about the difficulty of transition because we're going against all, all of those biological, psychological, and sociological forces. It's interesting that you cite the internet as potentially an inhibiting force here. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I mean, the promise of the internet was supposed to be that it would liberate. It goes both ways. I yeah. mean, it depends. I mean, like, for example, if for example, I mean, I mean, the internet is how most people, I would presume, became aware of you and your work. Of course, I'm not arguing that it isn't there for communication, new ideas. It can't if people know what they're looking for. But when I, people have a closed view on the internet, you can search for just what you want to see. In fact, you could probably think of any idea and search for it and find validation for that idea. So people are constantly reinforcing their views. Like again, look at the, the fake news Trump phenomenon, his followers, they, they blindly follow in their own pockets and social media. They ignore anything that contradicts their views, calling it fake news. It's a tremendous uh, psychological ploy. And the same thing goes for the other, you know, other extremes. You have people that are constantly reinforcing their own values and views by by, by focused searches for only their own values and views. So when people are on the internet now, especially with social media, they're surrounded by group inclusion, generally. 
you know, I, I might get unless they make an overt attempt to uh, extricate themselves from those. No, they're not. Groups. But those, those don't because it's but not in our those who do are a minority. But yeah, hopefully they increasingly exist, or at least that's what I advocate. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. I'm not, I'm not arguing against the internet or anything like that. Yeah. I'm just saying that we have a problem with people not being exposed to new ideas, and the internet has a double-edged sword when it comes to that. Right. Well, hopefully this interview enabled the exposure of certain people to new I hope ideas. So too, yeah. And uh, Peter Joseph, I want to thank you for coming to the Young Turks. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate uh, it. The book is the new human rights movement uh, out this year, and take a look at that if you so desire. And we'll leave it there.